Section 14 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7, Blenheim, Part 2. On the 2nd of July, it was Marlborough's turn to command, and his army started at five in the morning on their march to the Schellenberg. Marlborough himself, who had hurried on with a first detachment of troops, came in sight of the Schellenberg at nine o'clock and began to reconnoitre the position. By midday, the main body of the army had come up. Marlborough was determined not to miss the chance of making the attack on the day when he had the command. After a short rest, the troops were ordered to advance, but there was still a stream to be crossed, and it was six o'clock in the evening before he could order the attack. The troops advanced firmly but were met by a terrible fire. Many brave officers fell, and there was a moment's pause. Soon order was restored and they pressed on again. Once more they gave way under fire and the enemy rushed out upon them, but were driven back by the English guards, who firmly stood their ground. Again the English pressed on, though their ranks grew thin under the heavy fire, and they hesitated till General Lumley gallantly brought up the horse and gave them new courage. The enemy, too, had suffered severely and were beginning to lose heart, just as the English and Dutch were about to break through the entrenchment, the Margrave himself led up the imperialist troops, who, having arrived later, had not yet joined in the attack. This raised the spirit of the Allies and completed the confusion of the enemy. One more effort, and the French and Bavarians were flying in disorder from their entrenchments. Marlborough ordered his horse to charge the fugitives, and there was a terrible carnage. Some fled to Donarvet and were cut down on the way. Others tried to escape by the bridge that led over the Danube, but broke it down by their weight and were lost in the river. Only three thousand ever got back to the Elector, and all their baggage fell into the hands of the Allies. The loss was heavy on both sides. The Allies had fifteen hundred killed and four thousand wounded, and many officers were slain. Night set in with a terrible rain, and Marlborough busied himself with doing all that he could for the wounded. The victory did not lead to any better understanding between Marlborough and the Margrave, and Marlborough's letters are full of complaints of the difficulties thrown in his way by the jealous temper and slow disposition of the Margrave. After the defeat on the Schellenberg, the Elector withdrew the garrison from Dunaviat and retired to Augsburg, and the Allies thus gained peaceable possession of Dunaviat. Marlborough then led his army across the Danube and the Lech into the fertile plains of Bavaria. The Elector was so disheartened by the defeat on the Schellenberg, which had destroyed some of his finest regiments, that there were hopes that he might be persuaded to make a separate peace with the Allies. But the promise of succor from the French revived his spirits, and the negotiation came to nothing. Marlborough determined, therefore, to punish the subjects for the sins of their ruler, and to lay waste Bavaria as far as Munich. But though in this act of destruction he followed the cruel example which Turenne had set in the Palatinate, he at least grieved for the suffering which he considered himself forced to cause. He writes to his wife, We are in the elector's country, and he will find it difficult to persuade us to quit it, 
we sent this morning three thousand horse to his chief city of Munich, with orders to burn and destroy all the country about it. This is so contrary to my nature that nothing but absolute necessity could have obliged me to consent to it, for these poor people suffer for their master's ambition. There having been no war in this country for above sixty years, these towns and villages are so clean that you would be pleased with them. Meanwhile, Marshal Talard had been marching from the Rhine to Bavaria, and fording the Danube at Moskirk, had effected a junction with the troops of the Elector at Augsburg. Prince Eugène had marched from the Rhine in a parallel line with Talard, and reached Hochstadt about the same time as Talard joined the Elector. It became absolutely necessary for the armies of Eugène and Marlborough to combine, for each was separately much weaker than the united French and Bavarian army. But there were great difficulties in the way of effecting a junction. If Eugène marched to join Marlborough and the Margrave in Bavaria, he would make it easy for the enemy to cross the Danube and interrupt the communications of the Allies with Franconia, and then they would be cut off from their supplies. If Marlborough and the Margrave marched to join Eugène, they would lose their command of Bavaria. It was an anxious crisis. Marlborough knew that failure now meant ruin to himself as well as to the cause of the Allies, for he had undertaken the whole expedition almost on his own authority, and there were plenty who would be only too glad to condemn him if he failed. Eugène himself came to consult with them what was to be done, and they met at Schrobenhausen. There they decided that it would be impossible for them to keep their footing in Bavaria without the possession of the fortress of Ingolstadt. The Margrave was easily persuaded to besiege it, as he was told that great glory would attach to its reduction, for it boasted itself of being a virgin fortress, which had never yielded to any foe. Marlborough was to lead his troops to join those of Prince Eugène, and the two generals, free from their troublesome colleague, hoped to be able to act with vigor and decision. When the Margrave had started for Ingolstadt, Eugène hastened back to his army, and Marlborough started on his march toward the plains of Hochstadt. His movements were hastened by hearing that the enemy was advancing with the obvious intention of attacking Eugène's army before it could be reinforced. Eugène sent urgent messages begging Marlborough to make haste. The march was difficult, for there were several rivers besides the Danube to be crossed, and all had been swollen by heavy rains. On the 11th of July, the first part of the English troops joined those of Eugène, and the main army came up on the 12th, having marched 24 hours the day before. Marlborough and Eugène mounted the tower of Dopheim Church to survey the country and discovered the enemy engaged in marking out a camp on the other side of the little river Nebel, between Blenheim and Lutzingen. The sight filled them with joy. They hoped to have a favorable opportunity for attacking, whilst the enemy was still disordered by the confusion of settling in a new camp. When it was known that the generals meant to fight, Several of the officers remonstrated with Marlborough on the rashness of the step, for the forces of the enemy were superior, as they numbered 60,000 men, whilst the Allies only had 52,000, and the enemy were in a strong position. 
but Marlborough paid no heed. He knew that every hour gave the enemy opportunities to strengthen their position, whilst Villeroy was advancing to cut off the communication of the Allies with Franconia. The orders to prepare for battle on the morrow were received by the troops with enthusiasm. On the night of the 12th, the army of the Allies was encamped on the banks of the Kessel, a little river flowing into the Danube from the north. On the other side of the Kessel lies a small plain about seven miles long, and in no place more than three miles wide. This plain is bounded on the south by the Danube, there about three hundred feet wide, with banks either steep or swampy and no fords. To the north of the plain, the ground rises irregularly in a series of wooded hills from which many small streams flow into the Danube. In about the middle of the plain, the Nebel flows into the Danube, and just where it joins that river, on its western bank, is the village of Blenheim. A little above Blenheim, on the Nebel, are two water mills, and still farther, about two miles from Blenheim, is the village of Oberglau, and then, half a mile further on, the village of Unterglau. The banks of the Nebel along its whole course are swampy and sometimes, especially between Oberglau and Blenheim, surrounded by so much morass as to be impassable. The French and Bavarians were encamped on the west side of the Nebel where the ground rises slightly, their lines stretching from Blenheim, where Marshal Tallard had his headquarters, to Lutzingen, near the sources of the Nebel, where the elector and the French general Marsin were quartered. Before sunrise on the morning of the 13th August, the Allies were in motion, and by three o'clock had crossed the Kessel. Marlborough and Eugène rode forward to observe the enemy and make their plans. Eugène was to lead his army to the right, where he would be confronted by the Elector and Marsin, whilst Marlborough was to lead his troops across the Nebel, near the watermills, where the passage seemed easiest, and forming on the other side, attack the French troops under Tallard. The morning was hazy, and the enemy had no idea that the Allies were approaching. Tallard was convinced that they did not mean to give battle, but to retreat on Nordlingen. At seven, as the fog cleared off, their columns were seen advancing, and there could no longer be any doubt that they meant to fight. Tallard hastened to make his preparations. He thought that Blenheim was the key of the position, and he threw a large number of troops into it, and strengthened it with barricades of wagons, boards, and gates. This was his great mistake, for he put so many troops into Blenheim that they were not able to move freely, and their loss unnecessarily weakened his line. His artillery was well posted on the surrounding heights. Marlborough, too, had commanding batteries on the heights below Oberglau on the other side of the Nebel. Marlborough's troops were in position at about eight o'clock, but he was not to begin the attack till Eugène was ready, and Eugène's troops had a long and difficult march over rough and broken country, dragging their artillery with terrible toil. Meanwhile, prayers were offered up by the chaplains in each regiment of the English. Marlborough, after pointing out to the surgeons the best positions to take up, rode along the front of his troops and was delighted to see the excellent spirits of his men. A brisk cannonading was kept up between the batteries. 
at twelve o'clock the message expected with such impatience at last arrived and they learnt that prince eugene was ready lord cutts one of the bravest officers in the english army was immediately ordered to begin the attack on blenheim the watermills were taken and the allies crossed the nebel amidst a terrible fire it soon became clear that blenheim was too strong to be taken marlborough ordered lord cutts to keep up a feigned attack sufficient to occupy the troops in blenheim whilst a great effort was made on the centre of tallard's lines End of section 14